Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 10. Psalm 10, we'll be reading the entire psalm this morning. Please give your attention to God's word. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of earth may strike terror no more. This past week, Stephen Curry, the basketball player, placed for the Golden State Warriors and a professing Christian, came out with a documentary called Emmanuel. And this documentary is about the tragedy that happened in Charleston, South Carolina a couple years ago when a 21-year-old white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into an African-American church, found nine people, found a group of people studying the Bible together, praying together, and shot them dead, nine of them dying. The documentary actually doesn't focus too much on the tragedy itself, but really focuses upon how it impacted the family members and friends and congregation members from that church. You'll probably remember that at Dylan Roof's uh, initial hearing, which was only about two days after the event, 
He, he was forced to stand before these family members and friends and listen to them talk about how much he had cost them, how hurt and angry they were at what he had done. And yet, almost to a person, these professing Christians ended their comments by saying, but I forgive you, and may God have mercy upon your soul. This documentary focuses on that because we've seen many mass shootings. Seems like we have at least one a month anymore. But it's that response of those who were harmed, who survived, and who were left behind of these kind of mass killings. It's that kind of response that stood out to the world. The media, the public, they were amazed by these reactions. Most of them admired it. Few of them understood it. Some of them even mocked it. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been called upon to turn the other cheek when we are abused, spat upon, persecuted, even killed. We are to forgive as we've been forgiven, even if the wicked of the world deceive, abuse, and kill us. We do that not because we are weak, as so many would say, but we do it because we understand true justice. Because we believe God's word, and God's word is all about justice as well as about grace. It's because we understand justice and grace and how they go together in God's plan is why we can forgive and why we can live with suffering and injustice. Only the Bible gives a full philosophical, moral, and theological framework for dealing with matters of justice and mercy. And we see it here in this psalm. Psalm 10 is probably the second half of a psalm that originally began in Psalm 9 in our English translations. And actually, interestingly, in the Hebrew manuscript that we have, they are separated into two psalms, Psalm 9, Psalm 10. But in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was one psalm. And the later Latin version is also one psalm. And there's reasons why those who have studied Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 have thought that they must have originally gone together. One of the reasons is that if you put them together, you'll see that they form what we call an acrostic psalm. An acrostic psalm is where you, you, in the original language, in the original Hebrew, each line of the psalm starts with a successive letter from the Hebrew alphabet. So the first line in the psalm would start with the, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the second line with the second letter in the alphabet. And there are a number of psalms in the Psalter like that. And if you put 9 and 10 together, they actually form a mostly complete. There's a few letters missing, and they puzzle over that. But there's a mostly complete acrostic psalm if you have them together. And so that's a big clue. But the second reason is because they're almost mirror images of each other. They're tied together, not alike, but tied together by their contrast from one another. One commentator said that it's almost like one's a photo and the other one's the negative of the photo. In other words, one is full of light with some shadows, and the other one is full of darkness with some rays of light, all around the topic of justice, of God's sovereign rule and justice. 
in, in chapter 9 or in Psalm 9, it speaks confidently of God ruling, of God being on the throne and his will being done, in, especially in regard to justice, to sins being punished justly. For instance, if you look at verse 3 of Psalm 9, it says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. And then over in verse 7 and 8 of, of Psalm 9, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Now contrast that with what we just read in Psalm 10, where it begins by saying, David crying out, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And the times of trouble he's talking about specifically are times where the weak and the poor are oppressed by the wicked. As he describes it in verses 10 and 11, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And so you have these mirror images where in Psalm 9, David speaks confidently that God is on the throne and justice will be done. But in Psalm 10, David says, but where are you, God? I look at my world around me. I look at my life and wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Where are you? Why are you silent? Why are you not taking action? Last week, we looked at, Pastor Owen led us in a study of Psalm 13 and we saw there that doubt is not necessarily sinful. It's what you do with doubt. Doubt should drive us to the Lord. In unbelief, doubt will drive us away from the Lord. Faith says, Lord, I don't understand. I need answers. And it goes to the Lord with those questions. Unbelief becomes cynical and turns away from the Lord. What you see David doing here is in this issue of justice. And justice is a... Is a big issue, hot topic these days. David is wrestling with this and saying, if God is good, if God is there, if God is on the throne, if he's in control, why is there so much injustice? He's saying, why, oh Lord, how can you allow these things to go unpunished? Well, how do we face injustice? I think as David deals with it in the midst of his doubts, and cries out to God, I think we begin to see how people of faith deal with a world that is so unfair, where only the strong survive, and where the weak and the poor are oppressed and abused. And so David begins this psalm with what we would call a lament. It is good to express lament before the Lord. Our modern worship music is not balanced like the Psalms are between praise and lament. And therefore, modern worship tends to be unrealistic, inauthentic too often. Because it doesn't reflect the realities that we all live in day in and day out. God's people are called upon to grieve, to weep, to shed tears over the sins and the injustices that surround us in this world and even more so within our own hearts. It said, Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. 
He's talk about, talking about spiritual grief over sin, over injustice, both internal and external. David describes here the wicked. And what he's doing is he's taking away the earthly masks of corrupt and wicked people, the powerful, the rich, the ones who take advantage of others. He takes away the mask. He doesn't show us how the world sees them because the world will look at them and think, wow, they've got it all. Sometimes they'll think, oh, they're great people. Sometimes they'll think even they're very religious people. But David takes away the mask and says, here's, what, here's how God sees them. When God looks at their hardened heart, this is what he sees in verses 2 through 11. He says, first of all, they're arrogant. Look at verse 2. Their pride drives them to tear down others so that they can build themselves up. Verse 3, it says, they boast in their selfish desires. They're not ashamed of these evil desires, these self-centered desires they have. They're not ashamed. They boast in them, glory in them. In verse 5, it says he puffs at his foes. And I think that might, in our cultural language, that might be like, you know, that, 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 that expression of disgust and contempt for others because of pride and arrogance. Secondly, he says they're deceptive. Not only do they put on these masks in order to manipulate and fool others, but they devise schemes, he says in verse 2, schemes to capture the poor, fool them, draw them in, seduce them, so that he can capture the poor and take advantage of them. In verse 7, it deals with the deceptiveness of his lips. It says their mouths are full, filled with deception and oppression. He even says that they even have extra sins stored underneath their tongue. I mean, their mouth is so full that they have to store some of their sin, sinful expressions under their tr- tongue. And then in verses 8 through 10, you get this description of how violent and abusive they are. Basically, the description is that they, they pursue the poor. They pursue the poor and the weak like they are lions after their prey. They trap them, they violate them, they crush them, all for their own selfish benefit. It's hard not to read that description and not think of the greedy corporate heads that we see out in the world today. The corrupt politicians, the sex traffickers, the pedophiles. Scripture describes the heart here. And then finally, David says they are either out, outright atheist or practical atheist. Because he's looking within his own culture in Israel as well as outside at the nations. He's even, I think, primarily here looking within the community of the people of God. Yet there are these wicked people who don't really know God. They deny God's existence even while they put on a front. This, one of the masks they put on is this religious front. But inside, in their heart, he says in verses 3 and 4, they renounce the Lord and all their thoughts are there is no God. But he still uses outwardly the language of religion. In verse 11, it says, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. In verse 13, he says, you will not call to account. So these dark, wicked people, for them, either God doesn't exist at all or he's unaware or he just doesn't care. And so they talk, they live, they act as though God does not exist. 
I'm reminded of how the world thinks about justice, about good and evil and what the results of it are. I'm reminded of it by the story that's told in Acts chapter 27 and 28. In Acts chapter 27, it tells about Paul and his shipmates and his, his associates being, uh, going through a shipwreck, a terrible, tragic shipwreck. Everything is lost and they are barely saved themselves. And after they come out of the ocean, they're on this island of Malta and they meet a group of natives, pagan natives there on the island of Malta. And Paul goes up to the, they've made a fire and he goes up to the fire to warm himself and he reaches down to grab a piece of wood to put it on the fire. And as he does it, a poisonous snake comes out of the pile of wood and bites him on the hand. Do you remember how the pagan natives responded to that? This is what it says according to Acts 28. It says, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. In other words... They expect justice in this life. They it's kind of a karma idea. That if you do bad things, it's going to come back upon you. If you do good things, you should be rewarded. If you do bad things, there should be punishment. And they want to see it in this life. But life does not work that way. As so many of the Psalms will point out, the wicked prosper in so much of the world. The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. The powerful prosper while the weak and the poor and the needy suffer. That's how the world works. And so the way that we as human beings respond to that in our unbelief is, well, then God must not exist. And that's what David, as a believer, is saying, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to go there. I believe, but I'm struggling to know what you're doing. Why are you delaying? Why are you not acting? While these wicked people prosper. Our culture has a cliche. It says, justice delayed is justice denied. In other words, if punishment does not immediately follow the infraction, the sin, the crime, if punishment does not immediately follow, then justice is not being done. Maybe justice doesn't even exist. And I think that's where we've come to as a culture that maybe an objective, absolute standard of justice doesn't even exist. Maybe God doesn't exist. We have this innate sense of justice. We are born with a sense that something, a sin, something that's wicked, the kind of things we've just had described for us, they should be punished. And where does that come from? It comes from God. We are made in the image of God. That's what the scriptures teach us. And even though we have twisted and distorted and covered over and corrupted this sense, innate sense of justice, it's still there. And so in a rare moment, we actually are able to express righteous indignation where something is objectively wrong, wicked, dark, and should be punished. And in our souls, we, we long to see that happen. And if it doesn't, then we doubt God. We can't stand to see someone get away with it, can we? That's often the problem in our own personal relationships. When somebody wrongs us, we can't live with it unless that person pays for it. 
It, we get bitter and angry because the person has gotten away with it. They've even prospered in doing whatever wicked thing they've done to us. When I was in, with the team that we sent to Senegal a month and a half ago, at the end of our trip, they uh, took us to uh, the island of Gore or Gore Island. And that's the island off the coast of Senegal, off the coast of Africa, where the slave traders, after they would capture the slaves from the tribes on the mainland, they would bring them to that island and they would warehouse them there. And it's a very dark place, deeply troubling place to spend any time. Today, it's kind of beautiful uh, as you look at it on the surface. But when you go to where the slaves were being held, where they were traded, where they were herded onto ships, you walk away with this very heavy sense of frustration. We saw the instruments of torture that were used upon them. We saw the, 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 the underground stone cells that were only big enough to hold maybe 50 people if you put them shoulder to shoulder and they maybe put 100 in there. We saw the little tiny uh, alcoves where they would stick them in to punish them where they couldn't even stand up and they'd shove them into the point where they couldn't get the door shut. We heard stories about the young women being raped by the slave owners. We heard stories about the ones that were weak being tossed into the ocean because they weren't strong enough to make the trip to America or to Europe on the slave, on the slave ships. And you spend a day there, you hear these stories, you see the remnants of the horrible, inhuman treatment. And you find comfort in a psalm like Psalm 10. It's easy for the words of David to come to mind and to say, why, O oh Lord, did you stand so far away while this went on for decades? Why did you hide yourself in those times of trouble? Those kinds of things are still happening. I keep seeing statistics. Slavery is still going on at an unprecedented rate today, even in our modern enlightened age. Well, that's an area for the political left. For those of you on the political right, how about one of your issues? Abortion is murder. It's the grotesque murder of the most helpless, most weak, most vulnerable members of our society. And recently, there's been an outbreak of state legislators trying to pass laws to at least limit the impact of this horrific sin as well as crime, what should be a crime. And what's been troubling to me is, unlike the last rash when this happened years ago, we're not getting arguments from celebrities and politicians and powerful people in our country saying, we should allow this. What we're hearing is, this is a good thing. They celebrate it. They glorify it. They write songs about it. And again, I say, how long, O oh Lord? Why do you stand by silently in these times of trouble? Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, if you want to do some devotional reading this afternoon to follow up on the message, I'd go to Habakkuk because Habakkuk wrestled with the same questions that David was wrestling with. Listen to how he starts his prophecy in chapter 1. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. When you see these things, I mean, we've grown jaded. Be honest. You'll read the headlines, you'll hear the news accounts, hear about the mass shootings, you'll hear about the slavery, you'll hear about people abusing others in horrible ways, and you're so jaded it doesn't even impact you emotionally anymore. Allow it to impact you so that you can go to the psalm for comfort. Grieve, mourn like Jesus said over the sins around you. But make sure you take it to the Lord because as we learned last week, you've got to take these doubts to the Lord. Don't allow these things to drive you away from him. And that's what David does. In verse 12, he offers up a prayer for justice to be done. He says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. What he's saying is, God, step off your throne, step into action, raise your arm to bring down the hammer of justice and say, enough. Let the wickedness stop. He says in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Break the arm of the wicked man. This is what we call an imprecatory psalm. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but an imprecatory psalm means a cursing psalm. A psalm that cries out for God to judge the wicked. And there are many Christians who would say it's inappropriate for us who are enlightened by the New Testament to pray prayers of, like these, these imprecatory psalms. But these are the words of God. These are the words of the Holy Spirit given to us through David. And they are given to us to help us process the wickedness and injustice that we face in the world every day. And it is legitimate to cry out to God to arise and lift his hand in judgment against the sordid wickedness that we face. Imprecations are not only found in the book of Psalms. They're found throughout the Old Testament. But they're not only found in the Old Testament, they're also found in the New Testament. So you can't claim this is some primitive idea of words of men that we've evolved beyond in this New Testament age. No, this is the word of God and it's true from beginning to end. Paul, speaking of false teachers in Galatia, he says in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In Revelation chapter 6, we have a vision in symbolic terms of what's going on in heaven right now where it says that the souls of those who are martyred for the faith, those who gave up their lives at the hands of wicked men because of their faith in Jesus Christ, you know what they're doing right now? It says they're praying. They're praying an imprecatory prayer. And it's, the words of it are given to us in Revelation 6. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We long for justice. We long for God to act. And this is a good thing. 
in this book, Knowing God. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's all, it should be on that top 10 list you read before you die if you've never read it. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He, in it, he quotes another one of my favorite writers, Leon Morris, and this is what Morris says on this topic. He says, the doctrine of final judgment stresses man's accountability and the certainty that justice will finally triumph over all the wrongs which are part and parcel of life here and now. The former, in other words, man's accountability, because of the justice of God, the former gives a dignity to the humblest action, and the latter, which is the coming of final judgment, brings calmness and assurance to those who are in the thick of the battle. This doctrine gives meaning to life. The Christian view of judgment means that history moves towards a goal. Judgment protects the idea of the triumph of God and of good. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, and finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. Now, I need to say, I need to give the caveat that when we pray prayers, imprecatory prayers, or sing imprecatory psalms, we need to do it with the assumption that Scripture always have, is that mercy is always available to those who repent and have faith in Christ. Mercy is always available. So when you sing the psalm, when you pray the prayer, it, what you're essentially saying is, if the wicked will not repent, then Lord, do not allow them to get away with it. If the wicked will not repent, then do not allow them to get away with it. Justice must be served. In verse 14, David makes a statement of faith. And there is where his hope lies. Contrary to what the wicked men are saying, he says, but you do see. You do see. In verse 17, he says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. God not only sees and hears everything that happens on earth, all thoughts, words, and deeds of all people, but in verse 14, he says, you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. You note it. You make a record of it. You keep a record of it for the purpose of judgment. You see, the problem of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the poor and the weak can only be solved by good theology. You can only live with it because of good biblical theology. Does God see all things? Does God know all things? Does God care about sin? And will God render judgment? Those are theological questions. And if you give the right answers to them, it enables you to live with injustice like we have to live every day. The Bible is full of the message of God's impending judgment from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. Adam and Eve sinned once and were cast out of the garden. In Noah's day, God judged the entire world with a worldwide flood and saved only Noah and his family from it. God poured out 10 plagues upon Egypt in judgment for their idolatry and sin. He destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. 
He commanded and empowered the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites for their sin, which had piled up over generations. He judged his own people because of their apostasy and their idolatry and sent them into exile in Babylon. The prophets of the Old Testament speak all about judgment. If you don't like the biblical message of God's impending judgment, then you're going to have to skip over a big section of Scripture because the, all the prophets make that as their major theme. And then there's Jesus. Not the made-up imaginary Jesus that the culture talks about that never has a negative thing to say about anybody or anything. Not that Jesus. The Jesus of Scripture who spoke more about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and the eternality and misery of hell than any other New Testament figure did. And even more than that, he made the amazing claim that when we all stand before God on that final day, that it'll be Jesus Christ who's on the throne giving judgment. He made that clear to us when he was here the first time. John chapter 5, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What about the preaching of the apostles? The early church, what was its message? Here's Paul on the Areopagus in Athens, in Acts 17, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him, raising that man from the dead. And so we pray for God to bring judgment. Anytime you say, come soon, Lord Jesus, and I hope you say it often. Anytime you say, come soon, Lord Jesus, you're saying, may the judgment come. That brings us to the good news that's at the end of this psalm. Like I said, it's a dark psalm, but the good news of the gospel is seen at the end where David speaks of our assurance both of justice and of mercy. Here's the ray of light. Look at verse 16. Verses 16 through 18, David speaks of his certain hope that the Lord is on the throne. He is reigning. He sees all. He knows all. He hears all. And he will judge justly. Wickedness will be punished fully. And the good news, those who trust in him, who turn from their sin and trust in him, will be delivered. In that passage in Revelation 6 that we mentioned a moment ago, where it talks about the souls of those who are martyred for their faith, crying out for God to bring judgment and to avenge their deaths and to avenge their shed blood. Do you remember what the Lord said to them? He said to them, wait a little while. Wait a little while until the full number of those who are to give their life for Christ is complete. You know what that says to me? There's great comfort in that. That says to me that God has a plan. That there's a number somewhere in the mind of God of how many people are going to have to give up their lives for faith in Christ. 
I don't know what that number is. You don't know what that number is, but God knows that number. And when that number is met, when the suffering of the church is complete, then the, 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 the judgment will come. The window of opportunity for grace will end and Christ will return and wickedness will be put away once for all. All things will be made right. Do you believe that? All things will be made right. No sin will go unpunished. We are to wait a little while. Wait upon the Lord. How often is that given as instruction to believers? Wait upon the Lord. Wait a little while. And there's a wonderful promise in verse 17. Don't miss it. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. The promise isn't that he will shelter us from suffering. Matter of fact, he actually promises we will suffer. He says, I will strengthen your heart. I will give you more faith. I will give you sufficient faith to endure whatever suffering I ask you to endure. It's what the Lord said to Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul said to him, Lord, please take away this thorn, take away this suffering. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Wait upon me. I will strengthen your heart and that grace will be sufficient for you. We can face suffering and injustice and persecution because we know that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and he is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he is coming back one day to bring judgment and full deliverance. And we know that all sin on that day, there is not a single sin in thought, word, and deed that's ever been committed in the history of mankind that will not have been punished at that moment. Your sin, if you believe in Christ and have trusted in him and live for him, your sin and my sin will have been paid for completely at the cross 2,000 years ago. Completely. But anyone who doesn't trust in Christ, doesn't believe in him, their sins will be paid for for eternity by themselves. That's the message of Scripture. But this is the day where justice is delayed. There was a, there's a story in the Gospels about when Jesus led his disciples from town to town. They came to a small Samaritan town and they went to that town to preach the good news of the kingdom and the town rejected them. Would have nothing to do with Jesus or his message. And so as they were leaving, James and John, those ones that were called sons of thunder because they were kind of bombastic and, and were wont to give this kind of expression, they said to Jesus, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I think part of their heart was in the right place. <laughs> part of their heart was where David's heart is here in Psalm 10. But there's one very important thing they didn't understand. And Jesus rebuked him, it says. Jesus rebuked him and went on to the next town to preach the gospel. They didn't understand the purpose of Jesus coming the first time. It would already have been explained back in John chapter 3. 
where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came the first time to bring mercy, to be the gospel as he hung on the cross and bore the wrath, the hell, the punishment that our sins deserved in our place so that justice would be fully served when it comes to our lives who believe in him. He did that the first time. His purpose in coming was to provide salvation to the weak, the needy, and the poor who cry out to him for salvation. But the Bible goes on to say that he will come a second time. And when he comes a second time, it'll be to put away sin once and for all and to bring judgment upon those who do not believe. You see, justice delayed is not justice denied. Justice delayed is grace. That's where we live right now, in the era of grace, while justice is delayed. That justice has been delayed ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And I pray that he'll delay a little longer so that we can get the message of Christ to those who need to hear it so that they don't die under his wrath and condemnation, so that when they face him on that day, they'll be able to point to the cross and say, my sin has been punished already. But we always misinterpret delays in justice, don't we? R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, tells a story about when he first taught a college class, and you professors will really enjoy this, um, he, he, when he taught one of his first college classes, he, at the start of the semester, he did what I'm sure many of you do. He kind of laid out what was going to happen in the, in the course. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm assigning you three term papers during this semester. I'm going to receive the first one at the end of the first third of the semester and the second one after the second third. And at the end, I'll receive the third term paper. And uh, so after the first month or so of, the, of classes, the first paper was due. He said, he told him, he warned them clearly, if you do not turn it in on time, I will give you a zero. 250 students about in his class, he said. About 25 of them did not turn in the paper on time. And they came to him and they pleaded with him, said, Paul, just give us another day. I'm sorry, you know, they're very apologetic. Just give us a little more time, all kinds of excuses. And he showed grace to them and said, okay, I'll let you turn it in a little late. Well, the second term paper came due. Out of the 250 students in the class, about 50 of them did not turn in their paper on time. And again, he showed mercy and did not give them zeros, allowed them to turn it in late. And then the final term paper came due. And out of the 250, 100 of them, about 100 of them, he says, did not turn in their papers on time. And he said, okay, it's judgment day. You're all getting zeros. And there was an outcry of injustice. That's not fair. How could you do this? And he said, oh, you want fairness? Being the theologian that he is. You want fairness. You want justice. Okay, all of you who turned in your first and second paper late, you're getting zeros on those as well. That's what justice looks like. And see, Sproul is obviously making the point that we take God's delay in justice as a warrant, as permission to sin more instead of taking it as an opportunity to respond to God's grace. And that's where we are today. There was a black journalist who wrote an editorial in the New York Times about a week after this event with D Dylan Roof and the families of the, the, of the people he killed in that church. 
And this black journalist wrote a, a uh, editorial that was titled, Why I Can't Forgive Dylan Roof. And what was interesting is you follow her reasoning. She was raised in a Christian home. She rejects Christian theology because she says it's weakness. And it's that old argument saying that black people have been kept in subjection and submission and suffering because of the, the weakness that Christian theology taught them. And I read that and I grieved over her misunderstanding that they did not forgive Dylan Roof out of weakness. They forgave him out of the strength of the gospel. That they could turn Dylan Roof over to God and allow him to be judge. They don't have to demand his punishment and they can actually pray for his salvation because of what Christ did and because judgment day will come. No sin, especially sins like Dylan Roof's sin, will ever go unpunished. Either it will be punished at the cross or on judgment day. Therefore, we can live and wait upon our God. Let's pray. Father, it's not often that we think to pray and thank you for your justice and your coming judgment. But Lord, we do so with confidence, not because of anything in us, because we know that as we talk about the wicked and all the characteristics of the wicked, we know there before the grace of God, go I. Lord, we deserve eternal punishment, but you have shown grace. Thank you, Lord, for waiting, for delaying the day of judgment until after we could come to know Christ and find forgiveness and new life in him. And Lord, we do want Christ to come soon, but we're thankful for an ongoing opportunity to proclaim that grace to those who need to hear it. I know that probably many people have come to the minds of the people sitting here this morning as we've looked at this text who don't know the grace that's in Jesus Christ and who are facing your judgment at the end of time. Lord, I pray you work in those hearts and work through us to bring that message to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.